Do take your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 15. Mark's Gospel chapter 15, we're going to read at verse 21. We've been looking at the arrest and trials of Jesus, and we took a, an overview of the crucifixion last week. Let's hear the Word of God. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him. This is the word of the Lord. In 1962, an archaeologist named Avogad published a journal article. Sylvia Dugan, one of our church members, is an actual archaeologist, and she will be thrilled at this title. A depository of inscribed ossuaries in the Kidron Valley. You with great joy can go home and look that up and explain it to us. Now, you can ask Sylvia whether I'm right or wrong in the next few sentences. Afterwards, an ossuary is a container which, in which the bones of dead people are placed. Now, one of these ossuaries that they discovered was inscribed in Greek on the front and on the back with these words, Alexander, son of Simon. And on the lid in Hebrew, Alexander the Cyrenian. In fact, all of these ossuaries that were found in this particular area, of all of them were of Cyrenians who had been buried there, or whose bones had been buried there. And uh, this got theologians very excited. Uh, Davis and Allison in there great commentary on Matthew says, speaks of the tantalizing possibility that the ossuary contained the bones of the son of the man who carried Jesus' cross. Now, whatever you make of that, there is no doubt that Simon of Cyrene carried Jesus' cross and that Simon's sons, Rufus and Alexander, were well known in the Christian community. Well, that's just an introduction to the sermon that says nothing about the sermon. I want to look at the story as it proceeds from there. First of all, to the place of the skull, the crucifixion of the Christ, and then the words from the cross. First of all, the place of the skull. They bring him, verse 22, to the place Golgotha, which being interpreted is the place of the skull. In the Vulgate, which is the Latin translation, 
The The word is Calvaria, from which we get Calvary. And they call it the place. Why is that? Why is that? Most likely because this was a well-known spot, a place for public executions. Why the place of the skull? Now, there's an ancient pious tradition that this was the place where Adam was buried. The Jews did have a tradition that Adam was buried somewhere around where Jerusalem is. But there was also a tradition that this particular spot where Jesus was crucified was the place where Adam was buried. For this reason, some Christian art has a skull lying at the foot of the cross. If you go to museums, you may see a cross and then at the bottom of the cross, a skull lying, and you think that's a bit odd. Well, it's not. It's quite deliberate by the, the artist. In some of the depictions of the cross and the skull, the skull is smiling. This is Adam smiling because he knows that the redemption is near. One of the great church fathers, Origen, believed this to be the very place of Adam's burial. Ephraim the Syrian included a reference to this in one of his great hymns. St. Jerome, the, the translator of the Bible into Latin and a great theologian, knew of this opinion, but he rejected it. So for those of you who have no place for it, you have St. Jerome on your side. A hundred years later, the evangelists who went round the then-known world proclaiming the gospel would often in their preaching of the cross include the story of Adam's, of Adam's skull at the foot of the cross as a kind of way of getting the attention of people as they're doing their evangelistic preaching. But all we need to know, all we need to know about Golgotha, all that God wished to be known is that it was outside the city gate And that it was there, to use the language of John chapter 19, there that they crucified him. Or in the shorter phrases used by Matthew, Mark, they crucified him. That's where they crucified Jesus at Calvary, Golgotha, the place of the skull. And yet the remarkable thing is that there is no actual description of the act of crucifixion. No stripping of the of garments, no placing of the body on the peg that juts out of the upright post to bear the, the, the body's weight. No, no hammering of the nails in hands and feet. No hoisting of the crossbar and sliding it into place. Because the people of that day did not need a description of crucifixion. The people of that day didn't want to hear a description of crucifixion. It was all too real, all too manifest. They knew it as the cruelest and most humiliating of punishments. Cicero talked about it as most cruel and terrible. Josephus, the Jewish historian, the most wretched of deaths. It all occurs at the place of the skull. Secondly, then, the crucifixion of Christ. 
Mark says that as they brought him to crucifixion, they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now, there are two understandings of this event. One is that it was an act of kindness, and then another that it was not. It's likely, many say, that this was an act of kindness by the women of Jerusalem previously mentioned. We know from extra-biblical sources, that sources outside of the Bible, that the women of Jerusalem were guided by Proverbs 31, verse 6, and would provide for those who were on their way to execution wine mixed with an opiate to dull the senses and ease the pain. Here's what Proverbs 31 says. Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget and remember their misery no more. But Matthew, in his account, sees a more sinister reason. He refers to Psalm 69, verse 21. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. So either it was to relieve the pain, or it was to induce death, a kind of induced, self-induced suicide, thus in both senses avoiding the agonies and the length of the agonies on the cross. As a drug, a means of cutting the length of the dying, and as a means of suicide, both of which would take a short circuit to death and avoid the agonies again. This prompts Austin Farrer, one of the great theologians, to say this, Jesus' refusal was an act of sublimest heroism. He rather chose to look death in the face, to meet the king of terrors without striving to deaden the force of one agonizing anticipation or to still the throbbing of one lacerated nerve. He endures his torture in full consciousness. Now, we looked last time at the preparation for understanding the death of Jesus that's given to us in the Old Testament through the servant songs of Isaiah and in particular chapters 52 and 53. But in the Old Testament, there's also help for us to understand actually what is going on on the cross itself that we find in Psalm 22. And in Psalm 22, we are told about the full consciousness of the one who is hanging on the cross. And he's describing what's going on around him. Dogs surround me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Well, these were, there were three prisoners that were crucified that day. Each of them had likely carried the crossbeam themselves, which at arrival would be put down on the ground. The two, the three prisoners would each be uh, stretched out on the ground with their hands, where their hands would then be pinned to the crossbeam. And then it would be raised. We're told about these other prisoners that they were less tied. That is a word meaning a bandit or a revolutionary an insurrectionist. Probably they were arrested at the same time as Barabbas was arrested. 
And once again in the servant songs of Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, we're told, is numbered among the transgressors. Here he is crucified with two people who had broken the law, and he is numbered amongst them. And so all of the Gospels agree that he was crucified, one on either side of him, Jesus in between them. Now they fixed a sign over the cross on Pilate's order, John 19. John actually says these words. He says, Pilate wrote it. He wrote it. Having vigorously argued that Jesus was not guilty during the trial, he now writes out with his own hand the crime of which Jesus is guilty. John uses the technical Roman word for this board that was often nailed above the head of the condemned. He calls it the titulus. And on the titulus, these were the words that Pilate wrote on a piece of paper that was pinned to the cross. Placed over Jesus' head, as Matthew says. Over him, as Luke says, confirming the kind of cross he was, he was crucified on. It wasn't the T-shaped cross. It was the X-shaped cross of which, with which we are so familiar. And above his head, these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. That's John's account. Matthew, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Mark, the King of the Jews. Luke, this is the King of the Jews. The sign was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. The sign is a message for the whole world. It's for everybody, wherever you are in the world. This message is for you. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And this sign would be publicly visible to the passers-by where the cross was placed, now where the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is today. Where the cross was placed, we know in the ancient uh, Jerusalem, was at an intersection coming down from Mount of Olives, coming from the west uh, towards the city, coming from the north towards the city, as well as a way leading from the south. All converge and then move, the traffic moves up the hill through the gates into the city. So this is a major, a major intersection. All, all of the pilgrims would pass by the crucified. All of the people coming in from the country to do their shopping in the city, from the suburbs, would pass by the crucified. There, in full public view, outside the city walls, these people, these Jewish people, would be reminded that within the sacramental tradition of Israel, specifically and related to the sacrifices that were offered out, uh, to deal with sin, they happened outside the camp, outside the city. And that their religious leaders had asked for crucifixion outside the camp. And that Jesus was going to die on that day when the Passover lamb would be slain demonstrates Jesus as the perfect Passover sacrifice, the lamb of God, 
who takes away the sin of the world. Now the Jews are incensed. They go to Pilate. They tell Pilate, take down what you've written. That's that's what they say to him. Take down what you wrote. Or score out and say something else. Pilate responds to them, what I have written, I have written. And Pilate's words unwittingly echo the Father's words to the Son in eternity, recorded in Psalm 2. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Those words spoken from all eternity are now bestowed on him in time. This is Yeshua, the king of the Jews. Well, the crucifixion of Christ, then the words from the cross. At this point, the apostle John tells us this. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and made four parts, one for each soldier. But his tunic was without seam, woven from top to bottom. As they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whom it's, whose it shall be. This was to fulfill scripture, John writes. They parted my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now immediately we hear words from the cross, words of Scripture, and words from the Savior. Words from the Scripture sound out from the cross. We have seen how the Holy Scripture makes sense of Jesus' suffering through those servant songs in Isaiah. But we must look for a moment at another passage of Scripture that actually makes sense of what is going on on the cross. And for that, we need to look at Psalm 22. The Greek version of the Old Testament Scripture is favored by Jesus and the apostles for its theological interpretation of Jesus' work on the cross. And so it's to the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, that the New Testament authors look. And in particular, they pay attention to Jesus' cry. He quotes from the first verse of the psalm. Now, if you were in a student, if you were in a university studying to become a rabbi, and uh, your teacher expected you to know your Old Testament backside foremost, everything in it almost better than you need to know it before you can be ordained in the PCA. Um, what, the, what the teacher would say to get your attention to particular passages, they didn't have chapters and verse in those days. Chapters and verses and so forth were added a long, 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 long time after, after this. What they would do is they would mention the first words, So when Jesus on the cross cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is alerting us to Psalm 22. He's saying to us, go read it. Go read it for yourself. And what do we find when we read Psalm 22? Let me read you just a little section of it. The one who starts by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? then goes on to say, 
You are holy. In you our fathers trusted. To you they cried, and you rescued them. And they were not put to shame. But then here he is on the cross. Listen to this language. Here is Jesus' words, the way he's thinking on the cross, communicated to David by the Holy Spirit a thousand years before Jesus takes on flesh and comes among us. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths to me like ravening, roaring lion. I am poured out like water, exhaustion, sweat, blood loss. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of the earth. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. This is about seven or eight hundred years before crucifixion is even invented. I can count all my bones. They stare, they gloat over me. He's hanging from the cross. They divide my garments among them. Here is Jesus from the cross telling you what is going on around him. The Gospels don't have to give you a description of what's going on the cross. Jesus already has. He already has. This is the description then that we have from the cross. And that's why the psalm is quoted, not only by Jesus, but by the writers through the Holy Spirit as they describe what is going on on the cross. Now, what grabs the attention is the mention of this seamless robe over which they cast lots. It's mentioned by John in John 19. Back in John chapter 17, we have Jesus, the great high priest, offering up his high priestly prayer, echoing, in fact, in its structure, the great high priestly prayer you have in Leviticus. He prays for himself. He prays for his fellow priests. He prays for all Israel, the Israel of God. Now, in John 17, before his arrest, Jesus had prayed as our great high priest, making intercession for his elect, his covenant people, the people the Father had given to him, the people for whom he'd come into the world, and the people for whom he will die. Now, the interesting thing about this seamless tunic is that this was precisely what the law prescribed to be worn by the high priest in Israel. In Exodus 28, in Exodus 39 or 59, uh, no, 39, and Leviticus 21. Here's what it reads. The high priest shall have it as an opening for the head. 
It should be woven without a seam from top to bottom, and it may not be torn. Here is Jesus, our great high priest, having been stripped of his tunic, is offering himself as the final sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice for sin. Listen to the Hebrews. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God by a single offering he had perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Now the psalm moves on from the sufferer's cry to the sufferer's strong conviction that God will never abandon him but will deliver him to a moment when in the future he will yet stand in the great congregation and conduct the praise of God in the great multitude of people. It's Psalm 22 that gives us Christ's eye view of what's happening to him. As I've said, they have pierced my hands and feet. He describes what's happening around him. Evildoers surround to mock him. As Isaiah says, despised and rejected, familiar with grief. The soldiers cast lots for his clothes. In doing so, the unwittingly did exactly as prophesied in Psalm 22. They divide my garments among them, and for my raiment they cast lots. Now these references should point us to the whole psalm. The cry of anguish, the profession of trust, the account of the sufferings, and the shout of victory. Because at the end of the psalm, He is able to say, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I'll pay before those who fear God. The triumph of the suffering crucified one will lead to the afflicted eating and being satisfied. There's this great word in Psalm 22 verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before him. Because of what is going on on the cross, there will be a universal impact. A powerful impact on people from all over the earth, to the ends of the earth. People will turn to the Lord. The suffering servant will lead through his sufferings all of us to praise with him. He will be our worship leader, orchestrating the worship of God in heaven. He will be the one at whose table we will eat and we will be satisfied. He is the one who will give universal salvation to all of God's elect. Those words of Scripture are being enacted in the events of the crucifixion. And I'm going to end with just one word of the Savior. His very first word from the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He's talking about their, their ignorance, their invincible ignorance. The Apostle Paul refers to this when he writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2. None of the leaders of this age understood this. That is, that God's wisdom is found in Christ crucified. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. What he's saying is, they are not not to be condemned 
for what they did not know. They did not know that the one on the cross was the Son of God. They did not know that by his being on the cross, he was going to provide salvation for the world. They were guilty for what they did know. They knew that he was wrongfully condemned. They knew that he was innocent, and they did not stand up for him. And so on the day of Pentecost, Peter refers to the same event. And he says to the Israelites, gathered there, you denied the holy and righteous one, and you asked for a murderer. He goes on to say, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. And he goes on to say, I know likewise that you acted in ignorance, and so did your rulers. Now this theme of not knowing is taken up by the Apostle Paul. When he's giving his own autobiography, Paul is a brilliant man. Best, he'd gone to the best universities of the time. He was an outstanding figure. And here's what he says about himself. Formerly, I blasphemed and persecuted and insulted Jesus. But all that has changed. And he describes it as this. I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul had studied. He knew his Bible. He knew that in our ignorance, we crucify Jesus over and over again. The great poet Browning puts it like this. Is not his love at issue still with sin? Closed with and cast and conquered, crucified visibly when a wrong is done on earth. Every wrong that's done on earth, in a sense, crucifies him. Our individual sins, because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us can look at the cross and we can say, He was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquities. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. We can say that. And by praying for their forgiveness, when you get this this morning, some of you, you don't know. You, you, you are struggling with the knowledge of who Jesus is. But this praying for forgiveness, in doing this, Jesus is giving us further proof, if we needed it, of who he is. The Son of God and Savior of the world. He has come into the world specifically to go to this cross, specifically to offer himself in our place on this cross and to give his life that he might give us salvation. It is for the likes of us that Jesus says, and forgive them. They know not what they do. Maybe you need to hear that this morning. Maybe you need to hear that in terms of your past or your fears even of the future. To go to this Jesus who says from the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not 
what they do. Cling to that promise. Claim that promise. Enjoy that promise. And know eternal life in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that as we reflect on our Savior and all that he has done for us, we may, may we, we respond with incomprehension at one level, but with thanksgiving, gratitude, and with a determination to seize with both hands the salvation that is offered in the gospel. We pray this in his strong name. Amen.